I've got good news for you, Calvary. I'm going to give you the entire message in the first like two minutes, and then you can choose to listen to the rest or not. But here's the whole point of the message today. When God brings his judgment, he extends his grace. When God brings his judgment in Eden, he extends his grace through Adam and Eve. When God brings his judgment on the world, he extends his grace through the family of Noah. When God brings his judgment on Egypt, he extends his grace through Moses. When God brings his judgment on Israel, he extends his grace through the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. When God brings his judgment on the cross, he extends his grace through Jesus Christ. And when God brings his judgments to the world at its climax, he has grace extended. The second point is that the means of this grace is proclaimed through a faithful, truthful, enduring witness until the end. God is so committed to the world knowing his grace, he will always preserve an enduring, faithful, truthful witness of that grace in hopes that the world would have ears to hear the mercy of God through the work of Jesus Christ and receive his grace to be forgiven and to be welcomed into the family of God. Now, that's the whole sermon. Now, here's how we're going to get there is last week, if you were here, we started looking at more of his judgments that he was pouring out on the world. This time it was through the six trumpets. These are trumpet judgments. They're warnings to the world of what God's going to do to completely remove all evil, remove all wickedness, remove all the destroyers of life. And in part, we're like, yes, let's do it. And then as we saw his judgments roll out, it ended in chapter nine with this phrase, and no one repented. And it was heavy last week that people would experience the judgments of God, the warnings that would, were intended to call them to him, and no one would turn from their wickedness. No one would turn from their evil. It's hard to stomach. And the question is, how does anyone turn then? Is it possible for anyone to turn? Has grace run out? Well, chapters 10 and 11 are going to help answer that. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 10. We'll begin there. Revelation is written in a way that parallels a football game. This is not my original analogy, so I borrow it and I share it with you. There's something about Revelation that parallels a football game in this sense. It has a beginning and it has an end. It's going to start in the first quarter and it's going to end in the fourth quarter. But as you watch the game, maybe you're going to watch it today. As you're watching the game, the game is paused and then there's like a replay. It's paused and then you get another camera angle. There's angles around the whole stadium to help you see what's happening in the game. There's times in which the game is sped up. There are times in which the game is slowed down. In a replay, it's slowed down so much, and the, and the attention on multiple camera angles is so that you can see if that football touched the ground or not. 
And at times through the book of Revelation, though it begins in chapter 1 and most certainly ends in chapter 22, there are pauses, replays, where we zoom in at times to see every small movement. The challenge is that we don't always know if you can quickly pick up when do things pause, when do things restart, when do things replay, when do we zoom in, when do we zoom out. But here in chapter 10 is a similar situation that we saw prior where he pauses from the six trumpets, like he paused from the six seals and gives an interlude, a pause, a break in the action before the seventh, which is the final trumpet that is blown. We're going to see that happen again with the six seals, pause, and then the seventh seal is open. And this pause stops the action. It's almost like you catch your breath, so to speak. And more detail is given, more things are looked at, and then the action resumes. And so in chapter 10 is an interlude. So six trumpets have been blown, these warning judgments of the earth. No one has repented, and you're just feeling the angst of this, and there's a pause. And chapter 10 begins. It says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So this is, now remember, this revelation sometimes happens in heaven, sometimes happens on earth. This is the perspective from earth coming down onto earth. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now all those descriptions we've seen before, if you've been through the study of Revelation, these are all descriptions of the throne room of God. And so this mighty angel has all the badges, so to speak, of the throne room. When I think of this angel, I think of NASCAR. It's like every driver is like, they're in the M&M car, and they have all the badges that go with that, the Pennzoil, the Exxon, or whatever it is. That's Team M&M. That's Team NASCAR. That's Team Napa. That's Team... And so when you look at this angel, he has all these badges from the throne room. Like, there's no mistaking where this messenger has come from. And so he stands then on the whole earth, right from the throne room. Verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this is going to apply to the whole earth, land and sea. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And you're like, come on, John. Like there's still things that are not known. Now, why would John still write in this book something that he can't tell us about? That's like a friend telling you, like, hey, you want to hear something really cool? And you're like, yeah. Ah, never mind. Like, no, now you have to tell me. that You can't just prick my interest and then not tell me. That's what John essentially is doing. He's like a bad friend. Just kidding. <laughs> What's the point of that? What's the point of him recording this? I saw and I heard, but I can't tell you. I think in part it's this. Revelation has, is unpacking many things for us. The things that were, the things that are, the things that will be. And there are a lot of people who open this book and say, man, I just know all the details on how it's all going to work out. I've like done the math equation. I'm pretty sure exactly when Jesus is going to return, how he's going to return, the right, the right sequence of his return. And they have a lot of arrogance in the book of Revelation. And I think in part, this is to keep us humble. Though we know many things, we do not know all things. 
and not knowing all things keeps us humble and dependent on the one who said, no eye has seen nor ear has heard what I have in store for you. No one knows the day or the hour, but stay vigilant. And so it is sealed up what he has heard. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, who created heaven and was in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that's God, that there would be no more delay, meaning time is up. Like we've reached the climax of history. The buzzer is going to hit. Time is up. No more delay. But that in those days, the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet is going to be blown. Time's up. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So things that he has foretold in the prophets, the seventh trumpet, time is up. It's over. Then John has this most bizarre interaction in which he is told to take this scroll, the words of God, and eat it. Verse 9b says, And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, fun Bible trivia, John's not the first person to eat a scroll. And like all things in Revelation, you just prick your ears to, okay, what Old Testament stories am I aware of that should should help place this one? And does anyone know another prophet who ate a scroll? Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. That's just a vivid way of saying, take God's word, the things that God has said as a prophet, and a prophet does two things. A prophet foretells what God's going to do, and a prophet foretells, just says what God has proclaimed. So take God's word, his message inside you, So you can proclaim it. That's just a vivid way of saying, ingest God's word to proclaim his words. So take this scroll in you, and it says this scroll is sweet as honey and bitter in the stomach. I'll tell you, this is helpful for me. Because when you teach the whole counsel of God in his grace and his judgments, and you proclaim he's going to come, He's going to judge the world. He's going to right the world. He's going to right every wrong and wipe every tear. He's going to remove all evil. It tastes so sweet. You're like, yes, finally bring the kingdom. And then you eat that. And you see his judgments executed. And you see many people who have not received his grace. And you say, who can stomach it? There are people that I love that just want nothing to do with his grace. This is bitter. And we don't don't need to excuse the bitter parts, and we don't need to pretend like it's all honey. We're faithful to proclaim all that God has said, the things that are sweet and the things that are really hard to digest. That's the whole counsel of God. And so John is then told, take this scroll, eat it. It's going to taste sweet. It's going to be so hard on your stomach. And proclaim it again. Verse 11, he says, and I was told you must again prophesy. I mean, like, you need to go tell the nations what God's word says. Again, you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. There's that four again. That's for the whole earth to know. For the whole world to know the message of God, both in his judgments 
and in his grace. And then chapter 11 opens, and chapter 11 is all about that witness, the witness that he preserves that's the testimony to his grace. And chapter 11 can be the most controversial chapter in all of Revelation. That there, is more, there are more opinions about Revelation 11 than probably any other chapter we're going to look at. And there are people that have decided some interesting ideas in chapter 11. And they're varied, and, and people divide over it. It's wild. Here, here's a question for you as we enter 11. There are amazing theologians that many of us have been built up in. Think of like John Edwards, John Calvin, John Stott modern pastors of John Piper and John MacArthur. Do you know what they all have in common with chapter 11? Yeah, the first name's John, okay? That's it. And so there are faithful, Bible-believing, God-fearing men and women that disagree about chapter 11, and by no means does it create animosity in the family, okay? So let's walk through chapter 11. You're interested now, yeah? All right, good. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So when, when it speaks about measuring something, it's an Old Testament way in which the prophets were told to go measure out the ownership of God. This is a direct reference. All kind of agree that this is Zechariah chapter 2 is one example in which he's told to go measure out the city, measure out the people, specifically here the worshipers of God. And the measuring out is the ownership of God. Go measure out the ownership of God of the people who worship in the temple, but don't measure out the outer courts where the nations would gather. That doesn't belong to me. Measure out my people that belong to me. This is ownership language. And within the ownership language is protection. Zechariah 2, measure out the city of Jerusalem and I will be a wall of fire around it. I mean, these, are, these belong to me and I will protect them. I will preserve them. I will be their fortress. And so it opens up with a measuring rod. Go measure out the people of God here in the temple but not the nations in the outer courts. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. There are two witnesses that are part of this that are clothed in sackcloth and ashes, which is griefs and sorrows, laments. These are these two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, a direct reference to Zechariah chapter 4. He says, you don't know what these are? Oh, these are the lampstands that are fed by the olive trees. And, and olive oil was a sign of anointing of God's people, really a sign of the Holy Spirit anointing someone. Lampstands is, the, is a picture in the temple of the people of God as, as their witnesses. So these two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. That's a direct reference to Jeremiah chapter 5, where Jeremiah, a prophet, is told to go preach the word of God, and it's going to be like a fire. It's going to sting when it goes out. And here's the thing. When prophets show up and they have a message, it's probably bad news, okay? Really, it's like, you're doing great. Keep on going. 
It's like fire. It's a refining fire to purify us. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power, these witnesses, to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague so often as they desire. Now, what comes to mind when you think of a a prophet in the Old Testament that turned water into blood? Moses, right on. What prophet comes to mind when the heavens were shut up in the days of King Ahab and Jezebel did not reign for three and a half years? Who are you thinking of? Elijah. Okay, so these are days of like Moses and Elijah. Like like the, the powers they had over the natural earth seems to be some way equated to these two witnesses. Verse 7, and when they, these two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. They have an adversary that wants to devour these two witnesses and end their message. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And three and a half days... Some from the peoples of the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. There's no honor and respect for them. They just lay them out like roadkill. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Like those in the world that do not believe and follow God are so bothered by their messages, they're, they're called torments. It's like every time they open up God's word, like, why do you torment me? Why do you attack me? It just feels like your words are so aggressive towards me. And so finally, when this uprising happens and they put to death these witnesses, the world celebrates. You see, they're merry. It's like holiday. They exchange gifts one another with one another and say, yes, those who proclaim the message of God are dead. We killed them. We're done with them. Or so it would seem. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. This is a revival or maybe a resurrection of sorts in which there's new life, God breathing his life back into his witnesses so they would stand back up. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. And it says this, and gave glory to the God of heaven. When that phrase shows up in the book of Revelation, that's always worship of believers. And so people would say, is this the time in which the world, the unbelieving world, sees the work of God through his witnesses, and many, many come to faith, and they glorify God for the first time. This is where we see that repentance, the receiving of grace, even in the midst of judgment. There are those who will see God's work and will give glory to him. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Like the time is up. So all this activity happens with the witnesses till the very, very end. And the seventh trumpet was blown. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This trumpet is blown, and the answer to the prayer is finally answered. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's been done in heaven. How will that happen? When will that happen? After the seventh trumpet. The kingdom of our God and his will in heaven has become the kingdom of the earth and his will of the earth. And the 24 elders, which we've seen before in this worship service, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, what has Revelation up to this point talked about with God, who was and is and is to come? Does it say is to come here? No, and is. Like, you're here. The kingdom's set up. You're starting to reign. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. The prophets and the saints, pictures of Old Testament and New Testament, and those who fear your name, both small and great, paupers and kings, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's what God has done. Those who destroy the earth, the ones who love to destroy nations, destroy marriages, destroy families, destroy Harmony, he has destroyed the destroyer and set up his kingdom. Like, this, is, this is great news. Tastes like honey. And man, it's hard on the stomach. It's bitter. For not all will receive his grace. In verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his, ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And we've seen that several times before, which is the execution of his judgments and the presence of God. Now you look at 11, and there's all of a sudden a lot of questions. If the big idea, big idea in this whole thing is that in the midst of judgments, God is always extending grace, and he will preserve a faithful truthful, enduring witness of that grace so that people have the opportunity to receive it. Who are the witnesses? Who's this temple? What about all these days? What about that beast from the sea? They die, they come back. What about these people who give glory to God? Who are they? Lots of questions. There are two primary, I want to put on the spectrum, camps on this one. Okay. In one camp, they would look at this text and they would say, the temple is literally the physical temple that Israel is going to rebuild at the end of the age. They're going to reinstitute the sacrificial system, and that will be the witness to the unbelieving world. This sacrificial system, will, they'll be set up for those who though they're Israel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have a believing Israel with a physical temple on the earth in which God has measured out and owns and protects, but not the outer courts, which are the nations which are going to trample on the city. And then the two witnesses, 
Again, are two literal witnesses, one and two. And if there are candidates for who are these two witnesses, this camp would kind of say, well, in the Old Testament, based on the descriptions of their work, it's probably Moses and Elijah, just like you got. Or perhaps if it's not Moses and Elijah, it's Enoch and Elijah, because what we know from our Old Testament is Enoch and Elijah were both caught up to heaven. They never actually died. And so these are probably the two witnesses that are going to come back to earth and be the two witnesses that are empowered to do a like, like a similar ministry that they had before on the earth in which the beast that was going to grow up or come out of the pit and be on the earth will seek them out, devour them, put them to death. There'll be two literal witnesses dead on the streets. The great city is Jerusalem and webcams or people's phones or whatever will help the whole world look at their bodies. And then three and a half days later, they'll be resurrected and caught up to heaven, and many will believe the seventh trumpet to be blown, and the beginning of a kingdom will happen. And the days in here are literal days in the sense of quantity, meaning you could take the first day and place it on a calendar and count out 1,260 days. You can start in the beginning and put out 42 months. You can do three and a half years because it's about the quantity of days. That's this interpretation. On the other side of things, and there's, hey, there's some things in between we don't got time for. On the other side of things, takes a literal stance on the temple being the people of God, the whole people of God, all believers, Jew and Gentile. You might call it the church, but the church isn't Israel, and Israel's not the church, but it's the whole believing community of God that witnesses till the very end of the age in which God is faithful to preserve. And their interpretation of it would be, yes, the oil is the anointing, the Holy Spirit of the lampstands. And you look at the beginning of Revelation, did he call a community of people already? Lampstands. And we would say yes. Chapters 2 and 3, he calls his church. Jesus is walking amongst the seven churches called lampstands. And what are they called to do? What are they criticized for not doing being faithful to witness. Why are there two lampstands here? Well, very simple. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Ma sorry, Deuteronomy 19, Matthew 18, calls for the testimony of two witnesses to validate a claim. You can't believe the testimony of only one witness. You need two witnesses. And so that's probably why there are two witnesses. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two as witnesses. Or you could say, of all the seven churches which were the faithful witnesses being preserved through suffering, there were two of them, were there not? And so these are the faithful churches that are through the time of tribulation till the very end. And the days aren't so much the quantity of days, meaning like you put them on a calendar and count forward. It's the quality of the days that they re represent. And so, yes, it's true that you can find these same numbers in your Old Testament, but it's to talk about the quality of those numbers, meaning 42 is, is the wilderness wanderings, the two years prior and the 40 years in the wilderness. So the days of the church will be like the wilderness. The 1,260 are the days that Daniel talked about, days of exile and persecution. Three and a half are the days of Elijah, speaking of God's judgment, who has a preserving community. I mean, Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God said, I got 7,000 that haven't bent the knee to Baal. And so they're the quality, the characteristic of the days in which these two witnesses will live in. 
And it's not that there's two that die in the streets of Jerusalem and that webcams help the world see, but it's church around the world in which the world grows so disgusted by the message of Christianity that the world puts to death its witnesses everywhere. It's just these empty, synagogue, empty churches everywhere, empty buildings. And it's like, yes, we got rid of Sunday morning. Like no one's gathering in those on Sunday. And so the Lord breathes life back into his church. And then seeing that church caught up with the Lord, the unbelieving world says, many say, glory to God and turn their hearts. You see the two different views? If you want to know more about this, Pastor Jay hosts a podcast during the week, and we podcast about the things we talk about on Sunday in more depth. So join the weekly this week, and we're going to talk about this in more detail. Now, if you're going to ask me, Thomas, which one do you lean to? <laughs> Who's asking that question? Man, dirty dogs. It don't matter. It's tough. I, I respect theologians on both of these sides. And I see where they're coming from. And, and I was raised and grew up and saturated in this. This is, this is Left Behind series. And as I've grown in my understanding of the scriptures in a different way, I, I lean, I lean towards this. Let me show you why. Oftentimes this camp yells at this camp for taking everything symbolically, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. And oftentimes this camp yells at this camp because they don't have a place for Israel at the eschaton, and I don't think that's true. So here's why I believe that this is actually the preserving witness of all the believers, Jew and Gentile, in the last days. Is it begins with the temple. Who is the temple that he has marked out? Who is he measured out and protected? Who, who is the temple? Is it a physical temple? Is it a literal physical temple? Or is it literally what the scriptures have called the temple. Remember, the Jews really struggled with Jesus' teaching about the temple. You destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three, and a half, in three days. And they said, how are you going to build this in three days? I mean, this building took decades to build. And Jesus says, you don't get it. I'm talking about me. I'm the, I'm the true temple. And those who belong to me are, are part of the temple. L listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? It's not, it's not like God's temple, you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Not like the temple, not a symbol of the temple, you are the temple. What about the sacrifice? What about the altar in which is described in Revelation? Well, we are called to be living sacrifices. First Peter tells us, to a Jewish and Gentile believing community, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, talking about the temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are the altar. Your life is the altar. Most clearly, I think, is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers, speaking to Gentiles who are outside of the Jewish faith, but have been brought in because of the work of Jesus Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of, get this, apostles and prophets. Not just Old Testament prophets, but the apostles 
This temple is built on the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in which the whole building is fixed, into whom the whole structure being to joined together in Christ grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The other thing I look at is where is temple language also used within the book of Revelation? So how has John used it prior to this? And if you go back, when, when, when Jesus himself is speaking to the church in Philadelphia, the reward of being a faithful witness and overcomer, listen to what he says. This is Revelation 3.12. To the one who conquers, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. Is he going to make you marble? No, he's not talking about that kind of temple. He's talking about the temple that is Jesus Christ and built on Jesus Christ. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. He calls this temple the new Jerusalem. All these believers, you're Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He's going to put his name on the faithful believers. And so where I lean today, thanks for asking, where I lean today is that Revelation is written to the churches. Remember this? And the church is comprised of Jew and Gentiles. It's the believers of Jesus Christ who are filled with the Holy Spirit, this, this oil that is a lampstand, a witness to the world of the grace of Jesus Christ, and is also a witness of what God's going to do to destroy the destroyer and bring his judgments. And just like then, they needed to hear Revelation. The whole book was written to them. And we need to hear it today, too, to say, as we live, what are we where the witnesses in the world? And God will always preserve a faithful, truthful, enduring witness to proclaim his graces. Now, you might disagree with that. And you may say, no, that, that is really reserved to a physical temple, believing Israel in the last days. Okay, even if you don't see yourself in those last days, you are the witnesses today. And so the big picture here is this. God wants his witnesses to make known to the world around them his judgments and grace. And so the challenge to us today, with our, whichever view you take, is how's the witness going? Where, where do you have the opportunity this week to witness to the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God through his son, in the places that you work, in the neighborhoods you live, on the sports teams you play on, in the hobbies and clubs, family members, wherever? You're a witness of these things. And so where will you have the opportunity to witness about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the world. Now, now one question that often arises when I kind of like throw my cards out and say I lean this direction is, oh man, you think the church has replaced Israel? No. Then what's the place of Israel? What's going on in Israel today? Does that have anything to do with eschatological issues? Absolutely. And that's next week in chapter 12. <laughs> if you're really concerned about what's going on in Israel or Israel itself or where does Israel find itself in, in this? Absolutely. Remember what, what, what Paul says in Romans 11, has God forsaken his people? By no means. There's still a prophecy of Zechariah 10 to be fulfilled. What Jesus said, they will look on him whom they pierced. 
and in mourning and grief receive him. And so if you're concerned with those things, man, chapter, chapter 12 is going to be great. But we leave here with this understanding. Now and into the future, God has a preserving witness. Today, today, that's you and that's me. And so let us always be ready to give the answer for the hope that we have. And let's do it with gentleness and respect that we might win many to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I do thank you for revelation as hard and challenging and often confusing as it is. I just thank you that you would tell us of the things that are, the things that will be. Father, we thank you that we know the end is victory. And our hope is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just pray that if there's anyone in this room who has never received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that they would believe on him, that they would believe that he is the Son of God and that God has raised him from the dead, that they would call him Master and Lord of their life, and they truly would taste how good it is to know and follow him. In his name we pray. Amen.